I will get to why I'm doing Revelation 12 in just a moment, but this is our last midweek uh, event uh, of the year. Next week we're having uh, uh, downtown Christmas family night, so next week this time we'll be in the, in the gym and in Harrington Hall playing games and eating snacks and listening to Christmas music. And if you, if you are planning to come, I hope you will. And if you're planning to come, I hope you'll invite somebody else with you. So uh, it's going to be a good time. But no more Bible study on Wednesday night until the new year. So what I'm going to do is we're talking about Revelation 12, and we're talking about Christmas. I'll, I'll get to that in a moment. Uh, but I wrote something several years back, and I included it in a sermon, and everybody seemed to think it was funny. So I'm going to take the risk of sharing it again. You got to laugh at the preacher's jokes. That's right. That's right. That's, that's somewhere in the Bible, I'm sure. But maybe the Apocrypha, but you know. So, so what this is, is my version of the way most people picture the Christmas story. Okay? The way most people picture the Christmas story. Here goes. On December 25th, in the year zero... A man named Joseph was trying to find a suitable place in Bethlehem for his wife to have their first child. But a cranky hotel manager took one look at this pregnant woman on a donkey and said, hit the road. Fortunately, the innkeeper's wife snuck Joseph and Mary into the stable behind the hotel. This is a very unique stable featuring animals that never made a sound and never went to the bathroom. <laughs> the whole place was dirt free with reverent lighting and it was filled with the smell of cinnamon and pine cones. <laughs> There, Mary knelt down and in a few moments of painless labor, produced a newborn baby with flawless skin and a golden halo around his perfectly formed head. Like the animals, the baby also did not cry or go to the bathroom ever. Joseph was by this means useless, so Mary asked him to tear up strips of a satin bedsheet, which for some reason they had. Therefore, he could, she could wrap the baby in it. She figured even a man couldn't mess that job up. Meanwhile, out on a plain near Bethlehem, a group of shepherds who looked exactly like bearded male models wearing L.L. Bean hoodies were surprised by a group of angels who looked like naked infants with wings. The angels told the shepherds to go to Bethlehem and see the new king, so they went immediately to the stable, which was easy to identify because a huge supernova star was sitting directly over it and the strains of the Hallelujah Chorus emanated from inside. Curiously, no one else in town noticed this. But soon, some visitors from out of town arrived. And so Mary, Joseph, and the baby were joined by three ornately dressed kings, a little drummer boy, a crippled lamb, Frosty the Snowman, the full cast of the Nutcracker, and Joel Osteen. <laughs> After posing for a few pictures, the whole group went home, tucked themselves in for a long winter's nap, and prayed that they were, their names were on the good list so Santa would bring them one of those nice cars with a red bow on top. So that's what people picture in the Christmas story. Maybe slightly exaggerated, but it's important to know that the real story is found in two of the Gospels, the Gospel of Matthew and the Gospel of Luke. It's important to know that Matthew and Luke both include very different details, so you can, you can marry those two, you can, you can interlink those two, and you get the whole Christmas story. Or there's also a third version that you may not know about. A third version of the Christmas story that's found in the book of Revelation, Revelation chapter 12. 
And this is a very different version because I, I think this is Christmas from heaven's perspective. So that's what I want to talk to you about tonight. Verse 1, And a great sign appeared in heaven, a woman clothed with the sun, with the moon under her feet, and on her head a crown of twelve stars. She was pregnant and was crying out in, great, in birth pains and the agony of giving birth. And another sign appeared in heaven. Behold, a great red dragon with seven heads and ten horns, and on his heads seven diadems. His tail swept down a third of the stars of heaven and cast them to the earth. And the dragon stood before the woman who was about to give birth, so that when she bore her child, he might devour it. She gave birth to a male child, one who is to rule all the nations with a rod of iron. But her child was caught up to God and to his throne. And the woman fled into the wilderness where she has a place prepared by God in which she is to be nourished for 1260 days. So the reason I say this is a, the version of, of the Christmas story from heaven's perspective is we see the birth. We see the birth of the Christ child, but this is not, this is not the version we're used to. This, this shows what was actually going on behind the curtain, as it were. You know, Revelation, I know you're aware of this, was written in an apocalyptic style, so it's not like other books of the Bible. There are, there are certain sections of the prophets that are similar, Daniel especially, but by apocalyptic, what that means is that there's a lot of symbolism used. It's almost a code, so to speak, uh, so that the Romans, the Roman authorities wouldn't know what this letter was about, but the early Christians would. And so for us, 2,000 years later, we don't necessarily get the code, and so we have to sit around and try to figure out what do each of these things, these symbols mean? I think everybody who reads this, professional Bible scholars right on down to ordinary folks like you and me, we all see that this is the story of Jesus. Jesus is the child in the story. We also see very clearly that the dragon in the story is Satan. And if we didn't see that, verse 9, which we'll read in just a moment, says it out just right out, just, just spells it out for us. And, and that makes sense. This narrative that the devil was waiting for him to be born, waiting to devour the child, that, that squares with what we see uh, when it says that they ran from the dragon and he poured out water to try to f kill them in a flood, but the earth swallowed it up. I mean, that's obviously symbolic language. Nothing like that literally happened to Jesus. But think about the life of Jesus. His life was constantly on the line. One of the first things that happened in the life, the earthly life of Jesus is the ruler of his nation tried to have him killed. Can you imagine being a newborn and having a contract out on your head? That happened to Jesus. And part of the Christmas story we don't like to talk about. Even in his hometown, when he was beginning his ministry, the literal beginning of his ministry was him standing before the people in his synagogue and reading from Isaiah 61 and saying, this reading is, is fulfilled in your hearing. And the people were so offended at his words that they tried to throw him off a cliff. Can you imagine the people who raised you, the people who've known you all your life, your own hometown uh, rabbi wanted to put him to death. The, the religious leaders plotted against him from the very start of his ministry. And in fact, they finally got him. The dragon finally got Jesus on Good Friday. But he rose again. He ascended into heaven. That's what verse 5 is about. He was caught up to God and to his throne. So we've identified two of the three characters in this story, Jesus and Satan. Now, who's the woman? 
Now you might say, well, obviously it's Mary. Yeah, I can understand why you would say that, but you need to read on. So let's do that. Verse 7. Now Michael, aro- no, I'm sorry, now war arose in heaven. Michael and his angels fighting against the dragon, and the dragon and his angels fought back. But he was defeated, and there was no longer any place for them in heaven. And the great dragon was thrown down, that ancient serpent who is called the devil and Satan, the deceiver of the whole world. He was thrown down to earth, and his angels were thrown down with him. So there's this war in heaven that that comes next. When did that take place? I know a lot of people who believe that this is about uh, what happened before the foundation of the world, and this is how the devil got thrown out of heaven. Uh, There's this whole narrative that that Satan was once an angel in the kingdom of God, in the throne room of God, but he got proud, and he, he fought back against the Lord, and the Lord threw him out. You know where that's from? That's from Paradise Lost by John Milton. That narrative in that exact form is actually not found anywhere in the Bible. Now, there are people who will, who will take the prophecy Isaiah made about the king of Babylon in the book of Isaiah and marry it with this, combine it with this little section here and say, oh, okay, that's talking about the devil getting thrown out of heaven. I'm just here to tell you, if that's what that means, it's not obvious. So be aware of the things you believe because they've been passed down from generation to generation. It's just commonly believed, sort of like the idea that that we're all going to be angels in heaven. That's nowhere in the Bible. And yet you'll meet people all the time that say, oh, my grandma just died. She's now my angel in heaven. No, no. The truth is a lot better than that. I'm glad to tell you. So that's kind of a diversion. But back to when did this war take place? If it didn't take place before the foundation of the world, I'll tell you what I believe. See, the idea that Satan was cast out of heaven doesn't reconcile with a couple of other places in the Bible. In the book of Job, beginning of the book of Job, what do we see? We see the devil walking right into the throne room of God. In the book of Zechariah, we see the devil standing before God and accusing the high priest of Israel. I think that all changed with Good Friday. Because, and this isn't in your notes, but one of my favorite scriptures is Colossians 2.15, which describes something that happened unseen to us at the cross. Here's what it says. Colossians 2.15 says that having disarmed the powers and authorities, he made a public spectacle of them, triumphing over them by the cross. Now, I, I preached on Colossians this past year. I don't expect you to remember this. I'm really not offended if you don't. So I'm going to remind you of what I said then. That's using language that every Roman citizen would recognize. Because anytime a great battle was won by a Roman general, he would ask Caesar to throw a triumph for him. A triumph was sort of like the ancient version of a Super Bowl parade, where they would line the streets. You've seen Gladiator. You've seen it, right? Uh, they would line the streets, and they would throw flowers in the, in the road as, as the victorious general would ride in on his, on his white horse or, or in his chariot. And then the, the legions would march in behind him, and then last of all would come the defeated enemy, the captured soldiers, stripped of all their armor and of their weapons, and they just made a sorry sight. That's what Jesus did to the devil at the cross. He didn't kill him. The devil still exists for now. But he disarmed him. He humiliated him. He conquered him. He is a defeated foe. He is an angry dog with no teeth. As God's people, we have nothing to fear. 
because in the words of uh, one of my kids, VeggieTales movies from when I was a kid, God is bigger than the boogeyman, right? So, so Good Friday changed that. And I think that's what it's talking about. I think the war in heaven, yes, Michael and his angels fought against the dragon and Michael won. Why? Because Jesus died. Later on, we're going to see in verse 11 or, or verse 12 that uh, we win through the blood of the cross and through the word of his testimony. So it is, it is the death of Jesus that wins every battle on a spiritual plane. So let's go on with verse 10. Verse 10 and 10 through 12 is sort of a parenthesis. We'll get back to the story in a moment, but we need to read this. And I heard a loud voice in heaven saying, Now the salvation and the power and the kingdom of our God and the authority of his Christ have come. For the accuser of our brothers, who's that? That's the devil. The accuser of our brothers has been thrown down, who accuses them day and night before our God. And they have conquered him by the blood of the lamb and by the word of their testimony, for they loved not their lives even unto death. Therefore rejoice, O heavens, and you who dwell in them. But woe to you, O earth and sea, for the devil has come down to you in great wrath, because he knows that his time is short. Now we'll come back to that. That's some significant stuff we just read. But I want to get back to the story first. The story picks up in verse 13, the story of the dragon and the woman and the child. Verse 13 says, And when the dragon saw that he had been thrown down to the earth, he pursued the woman who had given birth to the male child. But the woman was given the two wings of the great eagle, so that she might fly from the serpent into the wilderness, to the place where she is to be nourished for a time and times and half a time. You see, this is why I don't believe that the woman represents Mary. Nothing like, we can't find anything in Mary's life that jives with this. It says, verse 12, The serpent poured water like a river out of his mouth after the woman to sweep her away with a flood. But the earth came to the help of the woman, and the earth opened its mouth and swallowed the river that the dragon had poured from his mouth. Then the dragon became furious with the woman and went off to make war on the rest of her offspring. See, that's another reason I don't think this represents Mary. Uh, there's no indication the devil had it in for James or Jude or any of the other sons of Mary and Joseph. It says, Again, verse, 12, verse 17, Then the dragon became furious with the woman and went off to make war on the rest of her offspring, on those who keep the commandments of God and hold to the testimony of Jesus. And he stood on the sand of the sea. Now you can make a very good argument, and I think this is definitely a position of dispensational Christians, that this woman represents Israel. After all, she's described as having a crown with 12 stars in her crown, and there are 12 tribes of Israel, so it very, very likely could be. My own opinion, y'all heard that word, opinion, right? My own opinion is this represents more than just Israel. This represents all the people of God who are found in Jesus Christ. The reason I believe that is because this letter was written to Gentile believers. The purpose of the letter of Revelation, and that, yes, I said that right, the letter of Revelation, just a side note, let me, let me tell you why that's important. A lot of people, a lot of Christians think that Revelation was written so that modern day Christians like us could watch Fox or CNN or whatever news we like to watch, and we could go, oh, okay, now that, that makes sense because I saw it in Revelation. Okay, that means the clock is ticking. That means we've got, let's say, six months until Jesus comes back. Uh, that it was a guidebook for us to understand end times events. 
And I tell you what, there's a whole lot of preachers that have made a whole lot of money out of that idea. But in order to understand Revelation, it's important to understand that it was not written just for us. It was written originally for and to seven churches that existed in Asia Minor, present-day Turkey, 2,000 years ago. And so you need to read it, in that sense at least, you need to read it the same way you'd read 1st or 2nd Corinthians or Colossians or any of the other letters in the New Testament. Obviously, there are differences. Those don't use the kind of symbolism Revelation does. All I'm saying is, you have to put yourself in the shoes of the people who first read it and say, what was God saying to them? That's what we do when we read every other book of the Bible. What was God saying to them? Well, here's what I think he was saying. The emperor of, at the time was a man named Domitian. Now, a lot of people think that the Roman Empire persecuted the church for 300 years. That's actually not true. The empire only sporadically persecuted the church. There were, you know, for long periods of time, the official government didn't care one way or another about Christians. Their persecution came from their neighbors, especially their Jewish neighbors, but sometimes Gentile. But every once in a while, under somebody like Nero or Vespasian or Domitian, some emperor would get it in his mind to attack the Christians. And this was one of those periods of time. This was one of those periods of time when the church was really suffering. And here's something interesting about Domitian. His wife and son had died tragically. And so when you're the emperor, you can deal with grief a little differently than the rest of us can. His way of dealing with his grief was he declared his wife and son to be gods. He minted coins that showed his wife and his son holding stars in their hands. I just, I just can't help but think that part of the reason that Jesus used in his dictation of this to John, that symbolism of of starry crowns and, and holding stars as he was being, he was directly refuting Domitian's idea that his wife and his son were now gods. He demanded that the whole empire worship them, in fact, under pain of death. Now imagine living in a world, in an empire where you're in the minority. This is hard for us. You're not only in the numerical minority, you have no authority, you have no power, you have no clout. No one to speak for you. No one to advocate you. There, there wasn't a, a Roman senator whose, whose uh, base was the Christians. That just didn't exist. You had nothing except Jesus. And now the emperor has decided to arrest your neighbor and throw him in prison or catch your son and, and put him in front of the lions or, or, or take your, your nephew and, and tie him up and burn him to death. This is your life now. And it's very, very tempting in such a situation to think God has abandoned us we must have done something wrong because now all the favor we enjoyed before is gone and, and, and we're all dying left and right and the, the empire is going to stamp us out. And I think the book of Revelation was written to these people at that time in order to say, Jesus wins in the end. You actually are on the right side. Don't give up. Don't give in. Jesus wins in the end. So everything, every time you read Revelation, you have to keep that in mind. It's not just written for today. Are there things that in there that when they happen, we'll see them and go, oh, that makes sense now. Yeah, I believe there are. But you got to start by remembering it was written for encouragement. It was written to keep people from giving up because good wins in the end. Christ ends up on the throne no matter what. So, so... That's why I think the, the woman in the story 
is the offspring of Christ, uh, the offspring of the woman at least represents us. We are the, the ones who came out of the Messiah. We are the ones who came out of Israel. We are the, the people of God who the devil is making war on to this day. All right, so what does this say to us? Go back to verses 10 through 12. What, what is the purpose of this? What is the message we're supposed to glean from this unusual Christmas story? First of all, this is why life is so hard. This is an explanation for why life on earth is the way that it is. Again, I will quote to you verse 12. Woe to the earth and the sea, for the devil has gone down to you. We don't use that word woe anymore. Not, not this, this version of woe. We say woe like stop. This is a different kind of woe. This is, man, I feel sorry for you. That's what this kind of woe means. Woe to you. Woe to the earth and the sea. The devil has gone down to you. It's going to be tough, is what this prophecy is saying. Life is going to be more difficult now than it was before. And there are other parallel scriptures. Scripture says that the devil prowls around like, prowls around like a roaring lion, seeking someone to devour. It says, we don't wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the invisible powers of darkness. You might say, but you said a moment ago that Jesus disarmed the devil. Both are true. The devil can no longer control us. The devil can no longer snatch us and never could snatch us out of our Father's hands. Now we can actually come to the Father through Jesus Christ. So our souls are safe. There is nothing he can do to you from a spiritual standpoint, but he can make your earthly life difficult in a variety of ways. And he wanted us to know this. Jesus wanted us to know this for three reasons. Number one, he doesn't want us to be surprised and get discouraged. There's a strain of Christian thought out there that says that once you come to Jesus, everything's going to be great. This is one of my issues with faith-based movies, by the way. I'm not discouraging people from making faith-based movies. I think they should be made, and they've helped a lot of people. But when you watch, uh, when you watch faith-based movies, what happens? That person comes to know Christ, and all of a sudden everything in their life gets better. You know, and they win every game, and they, they get the girl they've been in love with, and uh, everything, every problem is solved, and that's not real life. We need to understand that in some ways, life gets more difficult when we come into the family of God because now we have an enemy whose sights are set on us. Secondly, he wants us to recognize the schemes of the enemy. The devil, again, can't steal our salvation, but he can steer us in a direction. He can manipulate us if we don't watch out for him. So for instance, on that moment when you find out, when you find yourself thinking, you know, I know I should volunteer for this ministry opportunity, but I'm no good. I, I look at all the bad things I've done. God could never use me. That's not the, that's not the Holy Spirit speaking. That's the devil speaking. When, when, you, uh, when you wake up on a Sunday morning and you think, well, you know, today's a good day to get caught up on my sleep. That's not the Holy Spirit. When, when, when you look around and you see people in your station of life and they're enjoying the flesh in some way, whether it's sexual sin or greed or, or materialism or whatever the case may be, and you look around and you go, well, why are they having all the fun? That's the devil speaking. We need to recognize the schemes of the enemy. We need to recognize that Satan is real. We need to be able to go, wait, God would not say this to me. 
This is not true according to the scriptures. Therefore, these thoughts that I'm having are not from him. They must be from the enemy. And you can renounce them. You can walk away from them. You can, you can run away like you would run away from a fire. And that is the best way to live. The third reason Jesus tells us this is he wants us to lean on him for deliverance. Let me give you, this may be too inside baseball for you, but let me give you one of the best preaching lessons I ever learned. When you preach, this is what I was taught, and I believe it. You are not the hero of the story. Jesus is the hero of the story. Let me give you an example. You read the book of, you read, you read uh, 1 Samuel 17. David faces Goliath. When I was first getting into preaching, here's how I preached that sermon. See what David did? Because he had faith in God. He could conquer the giant. You have faith in God, you can conquer your giants too. That's not the sermon. The sermon is, the giant is bigger than you are but Jesus fights your battles for you. You give him the battle. You give him the glory. He defeated your giants at the cross. That's the sermon. Jesus is the hero. We need to lean on him. The message of the Bible is not, if you just have the right kind of faith, you can do whatever you want. That's the message of Disney movies. And some of them are pretty decent. But no, this is the message of the scriptures is, you can't do anything apart from him. Bible never says, God won't give me anything I can't handle. Never says that. God gives you things you can't handle all the time. What it does say is, there will never be anything the world throws at you that God can't handle on your behalf. So lean on him for deliverance. To the day you die, the devil will be bigger and stronger and smarter than you. But Jesus is greater than him. Just remember that. That's, that's one thing that verse 12 tells us, or, or that passage tells us. The other thing that we're told is we win in the end, so we should live joyous and victorious lives. We win in the end. Isn't that good news? We win because he wins. And, and notice when I say we, I, I'm, I'm sounding, I'm, I'm using that word the same way I use it when my favorite team wins, Right? Because I didn't throw a pass, I didn't take a shot, I didn't, I didn't hit a curveball. I, but, but I tell you what, a couple of years ago, when uh, when the Astros, you know, when when Jordan Alvarez hit that home run in Game Six, we won. <laughs> and that's us as God's people. We 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 win the battle. In the end, we win the battle. Uh, the true child from heaven is not the son of Domitian, who was just declared a god. The true child of heaven was born in Bethlehem and died for our sins and is coming back someday. And that's very, very good news. Notice again in verse 11, what are our weapons with which we win? We conquer the devil by the blood of the lamb and by the word of our testimony. Because Jesus died, the devil has no power over us. We can call out his schemes and they don't work anymore. Uh, we can... We can we can run from temptation and it can't touch us. We can resist the devil and he flees from us because of the blood of the cross. And then the word of our testimony. What that means is you and I, I mean, to the day we die, as long as we've got breath in our lungs, no matter what other weaknesses we have, we have the gospel. And that's something the devil can't stop. So as long as we're able to share that word, as, as long as we have breath in our lungs and are able to tell people, here's what Christ has done for me, that, that, is, that is a strategy the devil has no answer for, period. 
The word of our testimony changes people's lives. So share it. Share with others what Christ has done for you. We win in the end. That's guaranteed. So we should live joyous, victorious lives. Now, here's my way of, of kind of picturing that. So imagine you're a soldier in a long and very difficult war. And in that war, you see your fellow soldiers, some of them giving up, just kind of throw down their weapons and just say, okay, you know, whenever I die, I die. That's the way it goes. And others become very selfish and they're only out to save themselves and they steal from their fellow soldiers. They just get discouraged. But then you hear good news. You hear that the battle's already been won, that the hero of your side has gone over to the other side and, and destroyed the, the leader of the other side. And pretty soon, his soldiers are going to find out and they're going to throw down their weapons. But in the meantime, you just know, we win in the end. That's good news. The other thing you find out is that I can't actually die. No matter what the enemy does to me, I'm still going to live. So that makes you courageous. That makes you generous. It means you're willing to, to take risks and, and do courageous things to help gain ground and, and hasten the end of this war. That means you're willing to give away the things that you have to your fellow soldiers and, and cheer them up and, and turn them uh, towards people who are believing in this hope that we have. We're, we're exactly like soldiers in a war who know we win in the end and nothing can actually kill us. Does that make sense? Uh, does that, did I do a good job with that analogy? It should change everything for us, knowing that uh, we are safe from the enemy in, in an eternal sense, and in the end, Christ wins. That's something we should think about, talk about, sing about, rejoice in every single day, because it's just as true right now, and it's just as true on the worst day you've ever had as it is the day Christ returns. So that, that leads me with three questions to leave you with. Number one, am I living the joyful, victorious life of someone on the winning side? There's, there, there are Christians who are morally pretty close to blameless, but they're not good witnesses for Christ because they don't have joy. They're just always discouraged. And, and that's something that shouldn't be true of a child of God. It shouldn't be true of someone who lives on the winning side. We should exhibit joy. It doesn't mean we can't be sad sometimes. Jesus cried at the tomb of Lazarus, right? There's nothing unchristian about sorrow. Sorrow is biblical. But even in sorrow, you have things to rejoice in. The opposite of joy is not sorrow. The opposite of joy is self-pity. So we as Christians should never be people who sit around and feel sorry for ourselves. We should live these victorious lives Number two, what should, I what should I be giving and what should I be doing to help win more ground for Christ? When you live a joyful, victorious life, one of the signs of that is you're free to give things away. You feel like, I don't have to hoard things. I don't have to hang on to this stuff because otherwise if I, if I lose this or if I lose this, I can't be happy. No, I've got my happiness. My happiness is assured. My joy is assured. I can be generous. I can, I can sacrifice because I know that I'm on the winning side. And whatever I give up for the Lord, He's going to repay it hundredfold anyway. You know, I, I've been told, and I think this is a good analogy, when you go, if, if you sit with an accountant for your taxes, and they go through all the things you, all, all the things you deposited and all the things you withdrew, right? 
while you're writing that check to the church or to another charity, may not be a lot of fun. But on the day you're getting those taxes done, you sure like that, don't you? You rejoice in every time you gave your finances away. And there's this backwards nature to it. And I think it's going to be that way on Judgment Day. What should I be giving? What should I be doing to help win more ground for Christ? And then third, who do I know who's stuck in hopelessness, who needs to know this good news? See, earlier I talked about Christians who don't have enough joy in their lives. I didn't say that to shame anyone. When we see people like that, we shouldn't, we shouldn't criticize them. We should pray for them. We should try to encourage them. We should try to help them find joy. Who do I know who's in that position, who just needs to be encouraged? And then beyond that, who do I know who doesn't know Christ at all? And they don't have any reason for hope. They're putting their hope in things that are going to fail. You know, the, the saddest person is the person who's just discovered that the thing they put their hope in can't bear that weight. Whether it's a marriage or a child or, or a career or, or finances, that is a devastating place to be. And when we know people in that position, that is the perfect time to, to be there for them and look for an opportunity to share, you know, this is, this is what my hope's in. This is how I know what my life is built on. And this is... This is how I know that my life's going to be all right. Let the Lord guide you. We win in the end. So let's live joyous, victorious lives. Let's, uh, let's remember the song. Joy to the world, the Lord has come. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, I thank you for this word. And, and I freely admit there's a lot in it I don't fully understand. But enough of it is clear to make us very excited about both our present and our future. We thank you, Lord, that you are our King. And I pray that we would represent you well, that we would live joyously, victoriously, and would draw others to you. In Jesus' holy name we pray. Amen.